0: Right now, in this room, people are responding to Jesus in different ways. As you've heard the songs, as we've prayed, as you begin to engage the sermon this morning, people in this room right now are responding to Jesus in different ways. And I want us to think this morning together about different responses to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because there are responses in our culture today, responses to Jesus that we will encounter. We need to be aware of those responses so we know how to engage people in the midst of them. So keeping that in mind, look with me in Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. We're going to cover two chapters this morning, which I know sounds ambitious, but we're going to move quickly uh, and uh, get to the gist of these passages. That means that after today, we will have two chapters left in the book of Acts. So we are working our way through Acts chapter 25. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said he... Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul "...argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, "...do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die... I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we pause once again to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. You are worthy of our praises. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of all glory. And Lord, as you are exalted in this place, I pray that you would accompany the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. That our eyes might be opened, that we would see the truths of scripture, and you would give us the inclination, the wherewithal to respond to what you show us. So have your way in our midst as we think about Jesus, the gospel, and people's response to that good news. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we have studied Paul's life through these past few chapters, we've seen that the Jewish religious leaders wanted Paul dead because he was preaching the gospel, and they felt like the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ undermined their customs and their uh, religious beliefs in Judaism. And so they wanted Paul dead, but because Paul was a Roman citizen, he was being protected by the Roman authorities. He was being protected by a governor named Felix, as we saw in the previous chapter. But the new Roman governor, who we're introduced to in chapter 25, his name is... Festus and he didn't know what to do with Paul. And so after Paul had already been in prison for two years, uh, Festus comes on the scene and talks to the religious leaders. They make charges and accusations, and Festus says, well, let's have another trial. And so the Jewish religious leaders come to Caesarea, where Paul was in prison, and they have another trial. Uh, trial And so let me just kind of sum up for you very quickly chapter 25 so we understand what's happening here because chapter 25 really sets up Paul's speech in chapter 26. And so let me just walk you through quickly chapter 25. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 6, which we just read... Paul before the governor, Festus. Festus didn't know much about this man named Paul, this Jewish man who was a Roman citizen, why he was in prison. I guess Felix did not brief him well as to why Paul was in prison. And so Festus, the new governor, is going to get to the bottom of this. He talks to the religious leaders, he sets up another trial, and he's going to find out why Paul is in prison and what uh, he should do to Paul or do with Paul. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see that Paul once again is before the Jewish religious leaders. They come down from Jerusalem to Caesarea at the coast, and they again hurl accusations at Paul because, don't forget, they wanted him dead. We're reminded in chapter 25 that they wanted Paul dead. And then in verses 10 through 12, which we just read together, Paul appeals to Caesar. A Roman citizen had that right if they did not feel like they were being Treated fairly in a province of Rome, they could appeal to Caesar and be taken to Rome where they would make their case before Caesar. Now just FYI, the Caesar at this time, uh, his name is infamous. His name was Nero. Nero was the Caesar. So Paul appeals to Nero. Uh, Then in verse 13, which we didn't read, uh, Festus, the governor, is visited by King Agrippa II. And King Agrippa was appointed by the Roman authorities to have jurisdiction in different places around Palestine, different Gentile territories. But because of his his link with the Roman Empire, he was given the very important job of overseeing Jerusalem and the temple. And so King Agrippa II knew something about the Jews and their religious beliefs and the temple and their customs. And so Festus uh, meets King Agrippa II and he tells him in verses 13-27 through 27, that uh, as he sends Paul to Caesar, he doesn't know what to tell Caesar. Uh, apparently as they sent a prisoner on to Caesar who had appealed to Caesar, uh, the sending party, in this case Festus the governor, had to give a document explaining why he was sending him or what the charges were against him. And so Festus says, listen, I don't know about the Jews and the temple and these religious accusations. I don't know what to tell Nero about why I'm sending Paul to him. So listen, I want you to listen to Paul with me so you can kind of get to the bottom of this and you can give me the information that I need to send to Caesar. And that all happens in verses 13 through 27. And then, starting in chapter 26, verse 1, uh, Paul speaks before Festus the governor The King Agrippa, one of the Roman-appointed leaders of that area, and King Agrippa's sister, Bernice. Look what it says there in chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission before this council, before the governor, before the king, before his sister, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And so we're going to study what Paul's defense is that he made uh, to these three that are listening to his Uh, case now as we look at chapter 25 and we see it unfold and we see chapter 26 unfold what we see emerge are three different responses to Christ now I want us to focus in on different ways different people respond to Jesus and we're gonna make some application to our day and our time so three different responses to Christ number one The first response to Christ we see is raging. People raging against Christ. Back in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he's the new governor. He's going to go and see his territory. So he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now you remember uh, the past chapter that there were 40 Jewish men that had made a pact. They would not eat until Paul was dead. They were going to assassinate Paul. uh, And and the plot was learned by some people close to Paul. And so the Roman soldiers sent him from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he would be safer. But after two years had transpired, watch this, these Jewish religious leaders still want to kill Paul. They're still planning an assassination. And this new governor shows up, and immediately the Jewish religious leaders say, hey, we want to talk to you about this guy named Paul. He's in prison at Caesarea, and, and, and we think he deserves death. We think he deserves punishment. And they begin to make their case against Paul. And so after two years had passed, these religious leaders are still filled with with intense hatred toward Paul and the message he was preaching. You might say like this. These Jewish religious leaders lived with settled, intense opposition to Jesus and his followers. It says there in verse 7, when the Jews came from Jerusalem to Caesarea to have another trial uh, with Paul, it says, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many... And serious charges against him that they could not prove. So they are hurling accusations at Paul. Why do they hate Paul so much? Why do they want Paul dead? After two years, why are they still bent upon Paul dying? Because Paul preached about Jesus and they hated the preaching of the gospel. And so these Jewish religious leaders have made up their mind. They are living with settled, intense opposition to Jesus Christ and his followers. They are filled with hatred. They are not just enemies of Christ. They are raging enemies of Christ. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, in our culture today, did you know that we face many enemies of the cross of Christ? Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul mentions those who he calls enemies of the cross. And there are people in our culture, people in our world today that are raging against Christ, raging against the gospel of Jesus Christ, raging against the followers of Jesus Christ, hatred, intense hatred, opposition against the cross. Now, what should we do? When we encounter people that live with settled opposition to Christ, they are raging against the cross. Well, listen to me. When encountering an enemy of the cross, we should ask God, listen, to dramatically intersect their life. Because here's what we know. We know that people who are enemies of Christ can be saved. And we know that because of Paul's example. Listen to how Paul tells his story In chapter 26, he says there in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. Look what he says in verse 9. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest to wreak havoc among followers of Christ. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. So I've appeared to you for this purpose. What happens here? Paul, who was earlier called Saul, was a raging enemy of the cross. And he is so bent on stopping the spread of the gospel and Christianity that he, uh, he agrees with folks to say Christians should die He is taking Christians out of their homes, throwing them into prison. He was an enemy of the cross. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Lord Jesus, and he was radically saved. So we know from that, that enemies of the cross can be saved, right? I mean, there are people out there that are so opposed to Christianity, we think, well, there's no hope for them. There were Christians in the first century that thought, there's no hope for Saul. He'll never bow his knee to Jesus. He's an enemy of the cross, but he had a Damascus Road experience. So here's how we ought to pray for folks that are raging against Christ. We ought to pray that God would powerfully, dramatically intersect their life to awaken their heart to the realities of the gospel. We ought to pray that people who are enemies of Christ would have a Damascus Road type encounter. That God would grip grip their attention, grasp their hearts with the gospel. It can happen because it happened to Paul. So what do you do when someone is an enemy of the cross? You pray for a dramatic encounter by God where they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and see its bearing upon their life. I was at a luncheon this past week with the Gideon ministry. They hosted pastors in this area and it was a wonderful time as they shared a little bit about their ministry and all that God was doing. The Gideons uh, are, uh, are committed to getting the Word of God uh, to the very ends of the earth because they know there's power in the Word of God. And the speaker at this luncheon told a story about a prison in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And a group of men went in, the Gideons, they went into this prison and they were passing out uh, these Bibles to the prisoners and there was a certain man there named the devil. That's what they called him, the devil. Matter of fact, the speaker at the Gideon banquet said this. He said, when the word of God goes forth, the devil can get saved. Now, I kind of perked up at that. What What are you talking about here? And he told the story about this man called the devil in Guayaquil, Ecuador. He was a, a really tough customer. He was known throughout the, the jail, the prison, as a very, very evil man. But he got a copy of the word of God in his hand and he heard the gospel. And the devil, the man they called the devil, he was saved. I mean, radically transformed. Even to the point that today, listen to me, that man they used to call the devil is pastoring a church in Ecuador. An enemy of the cross, radically saved as he's confronted with the gospel, and God dramatically intersects his life. And so the first response we see in this text is, is the response of raging against Christ. These religious leaders are raging against him. But here's the second response we see in our passage this morning. We see the response of scoffing. Scoffing. In chapter 26... Paul shares his testimony, his story of conversion on the road to Damascus, and how God had changed his life and his direction. And look what happens in verse twenty-four. Paul had just mentioned the resurrection of Christ, and in verse twenty-four it says, "As he was saying this, chapter twenty-six, verse twenty-four, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, said." with a loud voice, a loud voice. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The governor says, hey, I'm hearing what you're saying, I'm listening to the message, and Paul, you are crazy. You're out of your mind. You've lost it, Paul. Your great learning has driven you mad festus in this passage is incredulous he's he's so cynical to the realities of the gospel he's he's scoffing at paul paul you've lost your mind and we need to understand that as christians when we go forth with the gospel in a very secular culture there's going to be an increasing amount of scoffing in our direction where people look at us and say you christians are crazy you really believe this stuff? You have lost your mind. Paul was encountered by scoffing. The church today is encountered with scoffing. But here's what Paul wanted Festus to know. He wanted him to know that his belief in Jesus was true and rational. Look what it says in verse 25. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational Things. That word rational is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's the word "sophrosune." It, it means to have understanding about practical matters and thus be able to act sensibly, to have sound judgment, to use good sense. That's what, that's what that word means. So Paul's saying, I'm not out of my mind. I, I, I'm thinking through these things in a very practical way. And by believing these things, I am practicing sound judgment, Festus. I'm not crazy. I'm in my right mind. These things are true and they are rational. What can we learn from that? We can learn that when we encounter a scoffer, we are called to demonstrate the rationality of our faith. The rationality of our faith. This demonstration of our faith being rational is sometimes called apologetics. That's the term that's used for that defense of the faith. It doesn't mean you apologize for the faith. The apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense of. And so apologetics is the defense of Christianity. That's what it basically means. And so we've got to be able to demonstrate to a secular culture that that we're not out of our minds, that what we believe is true and it is sensible, it's rational, it's based upon real evidence, it's based upon things that are true. We've got to demonstrate that rationality. I've given you a quote in your notes from William Lane Craig in his book, Reasonable Faith. And he makes some comments about the United States, about how the landscape is changing quickly. He writes, What lies ahead for us in the United States is already evident in Europe. Utter secularism. Throughout Europe, evangelism is immeasurably more difficult because the intellectual climate and culture there are determined by the conviction that the Christian viewpoint is a false and therefore irrelevant viewpoint. In our culture today, we see people who are raging against Jesus, but we see more people that simply say, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. There's no bearing on my life. I don't need to hear that stuff. Go to your little church buildings and you talk about it all you want to, but that's, that's just not for me. That's, that's irrational. And they scoff at Christianity. He goes on to say, the average Christian does not realize, now hear this, that there is an intellectual war going on in the universities and in the professional journals and scholarly societies. Christianity is being attacked from all sides as irrational or outmoded, outdated. And millions of students, are, uh, our future generation of leaders, have absorbed this viewpoint, this secular viewpoint. And so here's what I believe has happened in America for the last 50 years. Christians have checked their brains at the door. We think, hey, I don't want to get all that intellectual stuff and learn that doctrine and theology. I just, hey, I just want Jesus. Can I tell you this? What you believe about Jesus is theology. And if you don't know what the Bible teaches and you are not being more and more grounded in your faith as you're more and more grounded in the Word of God, this secular culture is going to twist you into a pretzel. We've got to be able to proclaim what we believe and why we believe it. We're not out of our minds. The foundation of our faith is based upon real evidence. It's based upon things that are true, things that are coherent, things that correspond to reality. And we've got... As a church, as Christians, in this rapidly decaying culture, we have got to be able to articulate what we believe and why we believe it. And so we deal with scoffers. We've got to show the rationality of our faith. How do you do that? Well, we can put before scoffers some evidence. And and, in his speech here that Paul gives before King Agrippa and and bernice and festus he gives some evidence first of all we can put before scoffers the evidence of a changed life in verses 12 through 23 paul shares his personal testimony and a personal testimony has three simple parts the first part is this my life before i met christ we read it a little earlier verses 9 through 11 Uh, paul says listen i was an enemy of christianity I approved of Christians being put to death, like Stephen. I drug Christians, men and women, out of their homes and threw them into prison. I was an enemy of Christ. That's who I was before I met Jesus. And when we share our personal testimony, we need to be able to articulate, "Hey, here's what my life looked like before I was saved, and it wasn't pretty." We don't glorify our past. We don't. We don't spend you know uh, 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 an overemphasized amount of time on our past. But we need to tell people, hey, listen, before I met Christ, I was a mess. Because here's the reality, everyone's a mess apart from Christ. There's none righteous, no, not one. Everyone in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we don't need to hide that reality. We need to say to our culture, listen, before I met Christ, I was a mess. Our life before we met Christ. There's a second part of personal testimony. How I met Christ, Acts 26, 12 through 18, Paul tells the story of the the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the bright light, he falls down, and Jesus speaks to him in Hebrew, and Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus identifies himself and gives him his plan and purpose for Paul's life, and Paul responds, and so he mentions this, this encounter with Christ. Listen to me, everyone in this room, if you are a Christian, you should be able to tell people how you met Christ, The circumstances surrounding your salvation experience... You should be able to tell people that. Uh, I would say when I was nine years of age, I was raised in a Christian home. I was in church every Sunday, but I was not a believer. I began to realize I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And on one summer afternoon, my pastor, F.T. Rogers, came and sat down with me at my my dining room table. And he walked me through verses, and I knew at that moment I was a sinner. I deserved hell. My only hope was Jesus and his death and resurrection. So at that moment, I called upon the name of the Lord, placed my faith in his finished work, and I was Born again, nine years of age. Can you tell your story of conversion? So what Paul does here. That's what, how I met Christ. But then third, our personal testimony focuses on our lives after we meet Christ. Here's, here's, here's who I was before I met Christ. Here's how I met Christ. And here's the difference Jesus has made. And hey, by the way, if there's no difference in your life, maybe you didn't really meet Jesus. If you've truly been saved, he's going to change your life. And Paul tells the difference. Now he says, I'm a missionary to Gentiles. I I, I have a purpose, I'm a, a plan. I'm to go and bear witness to what I've seen and heard. I'm a missionary. Once I was trying to stop the spread of the gospel, now he says, I am sharing the gospel as much as I can. So Paul shares his personal testimony in three parts. And that's powerful. And we're going to talk to you a lot more about this in the coming days but we're going to teach you and train you and encourage you to be able to tell someone your faith story before you met Christ, how you met Christ, the difference Jesus has made in your life. We're going to teach you to do it in three minutes. Three minutes. Because you often don't have more than three minutes with someone. We're going to teach you how to share that story of salvation. Because listen to me. People can argue with your different belief systems, but they cannot argue with a changed life. Right? They can argue with a changed life. They may disagree with what you're saying, but your changed life is on display. And so we can put before people the evidence of a changed life. Secondly, we can put before scoffers the evidence of the reliability and authority of the word of God. Look what Paul says in verse 22. He says, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So everything I'm saying lines up with the Old Testament. Which, obviously, to the religious leaders, he's saying, hey, you believe the Old Testament and everything I say lines up with that. He says that the Christ, verse 23, must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul is basing his message upon the authority of the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Everything I'm saying lines up with the Bible. The Old Testament, which was the Bible at that time. The New Testament was not in its completed form. The Old Testament is pointed to the finished work of Christ. So what I'm saying is biblical. He appeals to the scriptures. And we need to say to a secular culture that what we believe is based upon something. Based upon the Bible. And the Bible has proven itself over and over and over again to be true. The very word of God. We get the joy of talking to people about things like fulfilled prophecy and archaeological evidence and historical realities that all line up with the Word of God. I talked to a, a friend of mine who I was great friends with in college, and we kind of lost touch with each other uh, after we graduated from college. But you know, several years later, I was able to talk to him on the phone, and I began to have a spiritual conversation with him, and, and I asked him where he was in, this, in, in uh, uh, his spirituality and what he believed and he began to share these these different ideas about life and he said listen I believe um, that all roads lead to the same place and if you just have faith in something as long as you try to do good uh, and you're kind of good outweighs your bad you're going to be okay Your you, whatever your faith path is it all gets to the same place at the end of the day and I asked him this question I said all you know all that sounds good very very appealing for people to hear that and believe that and I said but let me ask you a question What are you basing that on? Where's that come from? What's your basis for believing that? Well, that's just how I feel. Can I say this to you this morning? Because you may be here and you may be a scoffer. You do not want to stand before the judgment seat of God with your eternity hinging upon your feelings. You need to have a basis for what you believe. And I believe the Bible has proved itself to be a reliable foundation to teach us about God and our need for Him and the way of salvation, who is Jesus Christ. And so we need to, to say hey, what we believe is based upon something. We believe the Bible. I, there's a, a well-known pastor recently that basically said, "Well, we talk to lost people, we need to kind of not mention the Bible so much. No, we need to kind of be apologetic for what the Bible says. No, that's not what Paul did. Paul said, what I believe is based upon the Bible. And I believe we need to tell people in our culture what we believe has a foundation. It has a basis of truth. But there's some more evidence that we can put before scoffers, and that is the historical record concerning Jesus. Look what he says in Acts 26, verse 26. Speaking to Agrippa here, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Festus, you think I'm out of my mind, but let's talk about Agrippa for a moment. He's saying, I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You know what Paul's saying here is extraordinary. Paul is saying, I'm not making this stuff up. Agrippa will tell you, there really was a man named Jesus that caused a lot of uproar and tumult in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. This, this, these things really happen in history. This, this is not made up. And, and we as Christians can say, listen to me, you can choose to... To reject Jesus, you can choose to rage against Jesus. You can choose to scoff against Jesus. But you can't deny the fact there was a man named Jesus who walked upon this earth. And he had some some followers who were disciples who turned the world upside down with the gospel. And the only explanation is they saw him risen from the dead. There's historical re- reality that gives us a confirmation with what we believe. The historical record concerning Jesus. There are, there are secular Roman historians from the first century like Suetonius and Tacitus. And they talked about Jesus. This is not things that Christians made up in a corner somewhere. Some kind of legend so they could create some new religion. These things really happened in human history. There's a a historical foundation for what we believe. And so, we, as we grow in our understanding of these things, we can put forth evidence before a scoffing world. F.F. Bruce says this, The ministry and death of Jesus were matters of common knowledge. His resurrection was amply attested. The gospel had been openly proclaimed in his name. Anyone who believed the prophets and compared their predictions with the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth must acknowledge the truth of Christianity. There's an English historian in the mid-19th century named Sir William Ramsey. And he was an enemy of Christianity. He didn't think it was true. He scoffed at the history found in God's Word. And because he was a historian and an archaeologist, he set out to prove that the Bible was untrue. He believed that the book of Luke, the book of Acts, were not written in the first century, the, the century in which Jesus walked upon this earth. They, he believed they were written maybe second or third century, far removed uh, by, uh, from that time by people that wanted to create this legend or myth about Jesus. So he set out as an archaeologist, as a historian, to disprove it all. And he began to study Luke and Acts, and uh, he did a detailed study of the evidence. And he came to this disconcerting conclusion. The historical and archaeological evidence supported the fact that Luke not only wrote the book of Acts in the first century during the time of the apostles, but also wrote an accurate account of history. Rather than Luke being a historical fraud, Ramsay concluded that there are reasons for placing the author of Acts among the historians of the first rank. There are even reports that Sir William Ramsay became a follower of Christ. He was so convinced by the evidence. So listen to me. I believe. If scoffers will examine the evidence, listen, with intellectual integrity, they'll come to the foot of the cross. If scoffers will examine the evidence with intellectual integrity, they will be brought by the Spirit of God, by the truth of God, they will be brought to the foot of the cross as they see the reality of Jesus. And so when we encounter people who are raging against Christ, we pray for a dramatic intervention by God, a dramatic intersection of their life. When we uh, face those that are scoffing against our faith, that we've lost our mind, we show them our faith is true and rational and based upon something. But there's a third response here that probably is the more common of the three responses represented in this room today. We've talked about raging against Jesus. we talked about scoffing, but third, I want to talk about delaying. Delaying. Look what happens in verse 26. The king knows, Paul says, about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? The old King James says, I'm almost persuaded. Almost persuaded. And So Agrippa knows the Old Testament. He knows about Judaism and the temple and the Jewish cultures and customs. He knows the historicity of Jesus Christ. He really did live and, and minister and people followed him and believed he was risen from the dead. He knew all of that. Paul's saying, "Hey, Agrippa, you know the Old Testament, this all lines up with the Bible. Do you believe?" And, and Agrippa says, "Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian?" So what does he do? Paul says there, whether short or long, verse 29, I would would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the, go- the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, "This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment." And Agrippa said to Festus, "This man could could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar." Isn't that interesting? Paul, you trying to persuade me. Paul says, "Oh, I'm, persu- I'm trying to persuade you." And Agrippa withdraws. Don't want to hear anymore. In other words, he puts off. He delays. His decision concerning Christ. King Agrippa here felt the persuasive appeal of the gospel. Are you trying to persuade me? That word persuades is an interesting word. It's the word pytho. It comes from the, it's where the word python comes from. And you know, python kills its prey by squeezing, right? Squeezing the life out of them. And this idea of persuade is squeezing someone to make a decision. Are you trying to squeeze me, Paul? You're trying to persuade me to be a Christian. He felt the persuasive appeal of the gospel. Wait a minute. Agrippa's saying, Paul wants me to respond. And you may be here this morning and you're having that same kind of emotion. Wait a minute. Does the pastor want me to respond to all this? He felt the persuasive appeal of the gospel. So what do we do when when people delay their decision for Christ? They just kind of put it off. They hear, they feel the persuasion, but they delay. They withdraw. What do we do? When encountering delay, we should press for a decision. You trying to persuade me, Paul? Paul says, you're right. Yeah, you're exactly right. I am trying to persuade you. I wish that you and everyone would be persuaded to come to Christ. He pushes, he presses forward. For decision, not manipulation, but with passion. He shares his desire that people follow the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. But notice here, Agrippa is delaying. Could it be that you're here this morning? You've heard the gospel. We're all sinners separated from God. But God loves you so much he sent his only son to this earth. Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins and my sins. He paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. He was buried after he died, and early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. He's alive and mighty to save. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The Bible says, Romans 10 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You've heard the gospel. You felt the persuasive appeal of the gospel. But right now in your heart, you're saying, not today. Not right now. It's not for me. And you have every intention, listen to me, you have every intention as f- after we sing our last song to withdraw. And say, I'm not going to consider Jesus anymore today. I need to get away from this place. You are delaying. There's an old hymn titled, and it comes from the King James language, Almost Persuaded. It's written by a man named Philip Paul Bliss. And Philip Paul Bliss was in a congregation one morning listening to a pastor named Reverend Brundage. And he was preaching on this very passage. He was preaching on Festus, and Festus delaying his response to the gospel. And Reverend Brundage made this statement. Listen to me carefully. He who is almost persuaded is almost saved. And to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. Based upon that statement, Philip Bliss wrote that hymn. Almost persuaded. Listen to the words. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. O wanderer, come. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad that bitter wail. Almost. But lost. To be close to being saved, to be almost saved, is to be entirely lost. You either saved or you are lost. And why would you hear of the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ for your sin? Why would you hear that and put it off one more moment? Jesus loves you. And so here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with. We are to boldly share the gospel with everyone while anticipating different responses. We're to boldly share the gospel with everyone while anticipating different responses. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. When you encounter different responses, it's still the same gospel. You don't change the gospel for different types of responses. It's the same gospel. The gospel is the power of God of salvation. Amen? So whatever the response is, you keep sharing the gospel, right? But anticipate that people are going to respond differently. It's going to affect the way you follow up and you pray and you engage with The gospel.